Good morning, church family. It's good to see uh, all of you this morning and uh, to gather together. Well, this morning we are uh, continuing on in uh, the Gospel of Luke, and I think it's it's fitting that we just sang uh, the song "Man of Sorrows," because certainly in these final chapters of Luke, we are seeing Jesus, the Man of Sorrows. There's some heavy stuff. Uh, heavier moments of Jesus's life as he nears the cross. Um, And I think it's actually also fitting as we get close to Easter that this season in the church calendar historically is known as the season of Lent. And during Lent, it really is a season of repentance and lowliness. We're remembering the sufferings of Christ and we're seeing in them our need for a savior. And so I think it's fitting that we're spending time maybe on some sermons and and texts that are a little bit heavier in this season, but we're looking toward only a few weeks from now when we celebrate and we rejoice in the risen Christ, amen? So let's uh, let's dig in uh, here at the end of chapter 22. And if you wanna follow along in your scriptures, you can. Well, there, there is a, uh, a scene in the great American movie classic, The Matrix, uh, where Neo is being chased by Agent Smith. And if you know the movie, he's often being chased by Agent Smith because Agent Smith is different people. Whenever, whenever Neo escapes his pursuit or beats him, uh, he just moves along. And then Agent Smith becomes like the next person in the room chasing him again. Uh, and there's kind of the zenith of this idea. If you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying it's, it's fantastic. Um, but... <laughs> Parents, you, it's your call. Um, but the zenith of this idea is in the second movie, uh, Neo finds himself on a park bench and in, in this courtyard, in walk many Agent Smiths all at once, dozens of them coming at him from all angles. He's having to fight them off with who knows what, mostly his ninja skills, but he's fighting them off uh, and, and they're coming from everywhere. And I think that's kind of what this, the end of the gospels feels like a little bit. That the the enemy's plan is coming from all angles, coming at Jesus. It's been that way through his whole ministry. During Christ's whole ministry, uh, we we saw Herod the Great early on seeking to kill all of the babies, trying to to wipe out Jesus. We saw saw these evil forces coming uh, in in Jesus's first time to open the scroll and to read from the book of Isaiah in his hometown. What'd they try to do after he, he read? They wanted to throw him off a cliff. They were so mad. Uh, But of course, he he escaped. He had more ministry to do. And it it just kept going. The Jewish leaders early on plotting his death, political leaders who hated him, even one of his own disciples were told by the, the scriptures that Satan came and entered him and he betrayed Jesus for money. Of course, we know that none of these things happen outside of the sovereign hand and the plan of the Father. But Satan is using every bullet in the chamber. It is Psalm chapter two played out. Psalm two says this, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. And isn't that not just the theme in the gospels, but in the theme of all of scriptures, all all the scriptures, Israel's leaders conspiring, all nations and rulers, demonic forces and principalities colluding with the wickedness of, of the hearts of men and women to say, I don't want Jesus. I don't want God as king over me. I don't want to worship him. I want to rule myself. This is the human story. We want our own rule 
And really the, the refrain of that, of that desire is verse three of Psalm chapter two. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. We wanna be autonomous. We want to rule ourselves. And in today's passage, as we see Jesus on trial, we see the many forces coming from all angles. Chief priests, Jewish hierarchy, Roman leaders, the court system, even rulers that don't like each other are joining forces to take down the king. Everyone conspiring against the hero, Jesus. But in this part of the story, Neo doesn't dodge the bullets. That's coming. But in this part of the story, uh, something more difficult happens. So as opposition mounts and Jesus stands trial, I want us to see three kinds of opposition that are coming against him. Number one, we're gonna see religious opposition. Number two, political opposition. Number three, personal opposition. And then we're gonna see number four, the, the most powerful defeat. So before we, before we go any further, I wanna I want just invite you to pray. So right where you're at, would you just ask the Lord, Whatever it is that, that maybe has, is bogging down your own mind and your own heart, distracting you from him, would you just ask him, Lord, would you clear that out for me? Would you help me to look to you? Help me to see you in a way uh, that maybe, maybe I, my heart is not ready for right now. Would you, would, you, would you help me so that I can see who you are? Ask him now. And would you pray for me uh, that I would speak what God would have me to say, what, uh, that we would, not, we would not hear my ideas, but we would hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us through his word. Oh Lord, we need you. Every minute, every second, we need you. Right now, we need you. Would you help each of us, every person in this room, everyone sitting, everyone standing, myself included, Lord, would you help us not to gloss over who you are, not to miss it, not to, not to see what we wanna see, but to see who you are and what you've done your love on display, your kindness to sinners. And would it change us? Do this by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we begin with number one, uh, religious opposition. Now, this, is the, this, this first trial is, ultimately, this is what's gonna get Jesus killed, is this trial. Jesus uh, is coming face to face with a challenge from the leaders of Israel. Uh, verse 66, we just read this. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. 
Now, each of these trial scenes is, is, is something slightly different, uh, but this, this is the Jewish trial uh, that's happening before, with the Sanhedrin. Now, the other gospel accounts actually tell us what happened right before this. Uh, that There were actually three phases to this trial uh, that immediately after Jesus was arrested at Gethsemane in the, in the garden, he actually first is taken and interrogated at the house of Annas, the former high priest that he's, he's interrogated and, and beaten there. And then from there, he ta- he's, he's then taken to the house of Caiaphas and Annas' son, and he's, he's interrogated and beaten there. Um, and then finally, the minute the sun comes up, that's, they take him to the Sanhedrin. And that's where Luke is bringing us into the story. They bring Jesus before this, this body. The Sanhedrin is a group of, of 70 men. It's made up of, of elders and scribes and chief priests. It, it's headed up by the high priest, Caiaphas. He's, he he kind of is in charge of it. And most of the members of this group are Sadducees. And the Sadducees in the story are really the more wealthy, aristocratic Jewish leaders. They are, they are the ones more politically connected, more, we see that as they go and they're having conversations with Pilate. Um, they're much more sympathetic to Rome. But, but remember how this has all gone down. In the middle of the night, Judas came and he showed up with temple police with him. This wasn't just Judas by himself. He took the temple police, had chief priests and scribes, and they came, what, with, with weapons and torches. It was like Gaston coming after the beast. I mean, they're coming as though Jesus is about to fight them. Um, and it, it, what, but it wasn't lawful then to go straight to trial. You can't have a trial in the middle of the night. That was against their own laws. So, so they do all this other work at these other two places so that the minute the sun is up, they've already got all the questions out of the way. They've already know where they're going. They've got their charges firmed up so that they can begin immediately. It's all very abrupt, Uh, all a little too well organized. Um, And and as soon as dawn is breaking, they've gotten 70 men together at sunrise, uh, which is amazing. If this was America, it would take us weeks, months to get on a courtroom docket, Right? It takes my family like days, weeks to figure out how to like go to a movie together. Like it, that, us just organizing our six schedules is hard enough. 70 guys already there at daybreak. This was organized. And here they are. Basically the Jewish Supreme Court is convening here in the morning. And the interrogation has been underway. And Caiaphas is probably the one leading this, this questioning that begins here in verse 67. It says, they, they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Now, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't ask Philip about this. Uh, I, but I don't think it's, it's protocol, it's certainly in a case here. Uh, I, I don't know how this worked for them, but to just start off a case by, admit it. Like, I don't think that's probably how, that's not good lawyer work. You're guilty, right? Admit it. Um, but Jesus doesn't, he's not even gonna make that so simple for them. Here's Jesus's reply. He says, but he said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. It seems like Jesus is saying to them, yes, I'm the Messiah, but you don't even know what a Messiah is. You don't even know what a Messiah should do and you're not gonna believe it if I say it. You won't even ask the right questions if I begin to speak. And he's right. Rarely have they understood what he said. He's spoken about his mission for a while and, and their spiritual blindness caused them to miss it over and again. But here he goes. He's gonna tell them what he means. Uh, this is in verse, uh, here in verse 69. So we read, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Okay, and this is really where the trial picks up some steam. 
uh, the, the air in the room, I can almost guarantee changed at that point. Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. And soon my role, my task, it's going to be done. And when I do, I will sit down at the right hand of God. His hand of, of the right hand being the, the place of importance, of priority, of power. Jesus is pulling back the curtain on his identity. In other accounts, he adds, he adds this, you'll see me coming with the clouds of heaven. These are really specific Jewish references that Jesus is making. This is, this is not just king talk. This is apocalyptic talk. So they're, they're going, well, wait, wait, Jesus. So what, what you're saying is, here's where they go, verse 70. They all asked, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Now you might hear this again as, as a, a sidestepping of the question. With our inflection, we might, we might read this as, well, that's what you say. But that's, I don't think that's how we should read it. Because we should hear this more as an affirmation. And you can tell by their reply. They, they're not confused about what he's suggesting. Verse 71. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. That's all they needed. He's guilty. It's done. He's a blasphemer. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Caiaphas, in this very moment, he tore his, his robes. Uh, Matthew 26 says this. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. He deserves death. To claim such a connection to God is indeed blasphemy. It was, it was blasphemy for, for such a claim to be made. And, and look, they're not surprised that he's saying it. This, is, this should not be a shock to them. It's not like they're, it's a misunderstanding. They're not understanding what he's saying or, or that they're jumping to the wrong conclusion about what he's saying. It's not that at all. And the reason we know that is because they've already heard him say this stuff. This is not new. Just a couple of months prior to this, Jesus in John chapter 10, he's standing on the steps of the temple in Solomon's porch. Uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem. For, he's there for a feast. And here's what he said in John 10, 24. It says, the Jews surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. That's, whoa, big claim and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And how do they respond? Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, have I shown you many good works? I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They're clear on the matter. 
And some, some have told Jesus' story here as that he was, he was misunderstood and that's why he was killed. Um, or that, you know, the evil Romans, they, they just, they saw him as a threat. Um, or that the, that the Jewish leaders, they didn't like him. He was drawing attention away from them. And some of those things might be true, but that's, that's not why he was killed. They know that Jesus is making a claim and his claim is to place himself on a level plane with God. Blasphemy is either to make God lower than he really is, to profane him so that he's worth no more glory, no more honor than any other God or, or maybe even um, than, than, than people. Or blasphemy is to raise oneself to be equal with God. And listen, if Jesus is making this claim and it's not true, then they're right. He's indeed guilty of this. He's guilty of blasphemy. So if you see him here as, as some misunderstood sage, he's just a wise, he's a good dude, he didn't, wasn't doing anything wrong, railroaded by the authorities. No, that's not the story. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was declaring himself on par with God. Uh, Raymond Brown, in this short little book called The Death of the Messiah, he says, the charge against Jesus would have been that he arrogantly claimed for himself status or privileges that belonged properly to the God of Israel alone. And in that sense, implicitly demeaned God. Jesus isn't getting con convicted on trumped up charges or on a technicality. No, he, he's clearly said, I'm one with the father and the high priest is going, that's enough. Guilty, blasphemy. So where do we take him now? The first verse of, of chapter 23. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. Which leads to our second point, political opposition. This whole assembly, this is these 70 guys, uh, march, all of them march Jesus over uh, to Pontius Pilate. Now, this is not a long walk. It's not like they're on, you know, on the way for an hour or anything. It's a short walk, uh, not taking long. In fact, it's all going very fast. And so we meet Pontius Pilate. Pilate is, is a Roman uh, and is one of four governors or tetrarchs in the region. Pilate's particular region was Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. So this is, this is his home region. So we've seen now a religious trial. Well, Jesus now moves into a political trial. And the Jewish leaders, they had to bring him there because only Rome had the power of the sword. Only Rome could execute someone. In fact, uh, the, the more citizens that were in the nation, that was more clout for Caesar. So Caesar was not cool with just letting the citizens execute one another. The, these, are our, these are my taxpayers. I don't want them to just execute one another. So the Jews had to prove that, that Jesus wasn't just a religious problem. They had to, they had to prove that, because they didn't care. They didn't care about uh, Hebrew blasphemy. No, they, they had to show that he's a political problem, a rebel some sort of threat or challenge to Caesar. Sedition, that's what they got to pin on him. They have to, that he's a traitor. He's, he's, he's worthy of execution. They have, to make, they have to make Pilate feel that way, which explains the, what sort of things they start saying uh, to Pilate. Look at verse two. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. They're telling Pilate, this guy's a revolutionary. Like he's brainwashing young people. 
He's preparing them to revolt. He's, he's saying he's a king against Caesar. You, you should stop him. So Pilate asks him, verse, verse three, so Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? Interestingly, this, this term king of the Jews uh, was actually used previously of Herod. Herod the Great was, was the one who killed all the babies uh, when Jesus was born, seeking to kill and wipe out Jesus then. And, and I think part, part, of the, part of that's loaded in here. Are, are, you, are you claiming that kind of ambition? Jesus, do you, do you want to rule over Rome like Herod? Like me? Like Caesar? Pilate's not asking doctrinal questions here. He just wants to know, are you a political king or not? Are you here to lead Israel to throw off their Roman occupiers? What kind of king are you saying you are? And again, Jesus gives a strange answer. He answered him, you say so. This, this is not a denial, again, which maybe some of you wish, some of us maybe in the room, you wish you had, he had given a denial here. <clears throat> maybe you, some of you wish he, he had said, of course not, Pilate. I'm not a political king. I'm a spiritual king. That's, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not that, but, but, he, but he, so he's not, he's not denying that. But he also, it's also not a brash af- affirmation. He's not saying, you bet I am, and I'm coming after you, Pilate. In fact, in the Greek, it's, he's kind of being ambiguous. And I think it's very similar to his answer to the Sanhedrin. Why? Pilate couldn't have comprehended the true answer. So he keeps it veiled because the real answer, the real answer is yes, I'm the king of the universe. Pilate wouldn't have understood that. And in fact, really what he gives is the perfect answer because in one sense, Jesus is not a political ruler. He has not come to conquer Rome and to rule as king in Israel. Rather, he has come to to conquer sin and death and the grave and to reign in the hearts of men and women. To reign in the hearts of all those believers. But in another sense, he, he's the most political of all. He will one day return as the eternal judge of all the earth. He will sit over all, all, all nations. All, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of rulers. So what, is, what does Pilate do with this answer? Well, it seems like Pilate looks at Jesus and just makes his own judgment. He's asking himself, does this, does this guy look like a threat to me? Not really. Is he making threats? No. Is he surrounded by a powerful army of followers ready to go to war? Not at all. His, his, his dudes are fishermen. Those are his disciples and women. It's not an army. This is the infamous Jesus. I think he has to be, because as, as, he's heard of Jesus. The one Herod tried to kill 30 years ago, this is him? The one the religious authorities are are just totally scared about? Pilate can't reconcile what they're saying with what he's seeing. He's going, I've seen rebels before. He's jailed them. He's put down revolutionaries. And this this Jesus, that's what he is? He's, he's He's gonna be a king? He's weak and captured. He didn't even resist when they arrested him. He's not fighting back now. He's not making any demands now. Pilate's going, I I don't buy it. 
It does, he doesn't fit the bill. And he can call himself whatever he wants to. And Jews, y'all, y'all can tell him that he can't call himself that. But what is it to me? Who cares? Why should I care? Because remember, this is a political trial. And if the Jews want to get what they want, he's got to be a political threat. And I'm sure at this point, to their dismay, they realize it's not working. Because look what he says. Jesus is not looking the part. This is Pilate's response. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. They, they, Herod and Pilate, they, 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 don't, they don't seem to have interest in, in, in putting him to death because they don't see him as a threat. Now, now should they see him as a threat? 100% they should. Any ruler, any king who opposes Christ will one day face the resurrected king of glory. So they should bow soon. Even now, even as he is held uh, in captivity, Jesus is the one who sets up kings and deposes of them. Kingdoms rise and fall because of his sovereign power. The Lord of lords is coming and he will rule with a scepter. He will judge the living and the dead and he will rule over all. So they should be terrified. But right now he looks like a ragamuffin. And so Pilate's like, I'm good. I don't need to hear anymore. We can move on. And so they, they know they're, they're losing, the, the, the Jewish leaders are losing here. They're, 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 it's about to be game over. And so they make one last push and they, and they just begin to embellish, to lie. Uh, they're making him, trying to make him sound more like a revolutionary. Verse five, they keep insisting. They're just gonna go, hey, listen to all this stuff he's doing. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he started, even to here. And it's like you can almost imagine Pilate at this point. He's just about ready to, to close the doors, to kick them out. And he hears them say, Galilee. And he's going, did you say Galilee? Is that what you're saying? Um, verse six, when Pilate heard this, he, said, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. He's saying, Finally, loophole. Great, this is perfect. Take him to Herod. Pilate doesn't want to, he doesn't want to ruffle all the feathers. Like he wants to keep a good relationship with these leaders. And so he gives them the old, go ask your mom. Like see, see, see if she'll say yes. Maybe she will. Maybe it'll be good for you. Maybe Herod will be for it. Maybe he'll want to do this thing. Um, and he should have shut it down, but he throws him the bone. Take him to Herod. And I love that later, and one of the most demonic, kind of dark things of all this, Pilate and Herod become friends. We, we don't know exactly why they were opposed to one another. Maybe there was some rivalry, um, but something about this moment draws them together, their, their, their moment together against the Lord Jesus. And maybe it was because it, this was just a special thing for Herod to be involved in. I don't, we don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because it was in his you know, family line um, because he kind of saw himself as Jewish and because you know, Herod's dad had been obsessed with uh, killing Jesus at his birth. We, we don't know why, Herod, why this is so, such a bonding moment for them. But for whatever reason, uh, they're growing closer together. These who have a common enemy, um, anyone, who would not submit themselves to, the, to their rule. 
And the, oh yeah, Herod also just happens to be in Jerusalem. So that helps. Um, you can just walk him across the street over here and you can go talk to Herod. So, uh, so here we go. So number three, personal opposition. So now we meet Herod Antipas. He is another tetrarch, just like Pilate. Uh, but his region is the region of Galilee. So that's, if you know, Galilee is where Jesus started his ministry. That's where he, he began. And, and, uh, and so that's, that's, that's what we learn about Herod. In verse eight, it says, Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. And so we're moving into this final trial scene. Next week, we actually get a verdict but in this last scene, what is, what is happening? So if the, if the Sanhedrin scene is, is the religious trial and Pilate conducts a political trial, what is Herod doing? Like, it seems like Herod, yeah, there's, there's a political nature to it, but it seems like Herod's approach is personal. We're, we read that Herod's glad to see Jesus. Not glad because they're buddies. No, no, he almost, Herod almost feels a little unhinged when it comes to Jesus. And we see, we see this in, in his other rulings as well. He, he, he takes things personally. When John the Baptist uh, was, was calling Herod out for marrying his own brother's wife, what does he do? He has John the Baptist arrested. And then later at his own birthday party as a favor, a party favor for his wife, what does he do? He serves her John the, head, uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter. This is a, not a very normal dude. Uh, even now, he's eager to see Jesus, not because he's friends with Jesus. Now, back in chapter 13, we already know Herod wanted to kill him. Jesus called Herod a fox, which I think, as far as I know, is the only time anyone calls someone a fox in the scriptures. Uh, but it, it, seems, it seems that Herod had some strange fixation. Maybe it is the bloodline, we don't know. But now that Jesus is in custody, we, we don't even get to hear any questions that Herod asks Jesus. All we know is that he wanted to see some fireworks, some miracles. And if we know anything about following the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is not about like putting on a show for people. Um, he had said, it's a wicked generation that demands a sign. No, this is, this is personal for Herod. The demonic forces are mounting and Herod is now part of the plan, part of the chorus. He wants to see because, because of Satan's plan here, he wants to see the Lord's anointed reduced to nothing. And it's, and it's in the face of Herod's questions and berating that we begin to see Jesus take on a different mode. The quiet resolution of Jesus takes root. Jesus had been answering questions. He had been answering the questions that had come from the Sanhedrin, that had come from Pilate. But as Herod asks, we read that Jesus remains silent. Verse nine, so he, Herod, kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes, they're still there. They're, they're still taking Jesus around. They're, they're, they're standing by vehemently accusing him. Accusation after accusation. And Jesus has resolved to no longer answer this foolishness. The mocking, the derision continue, but the lamb of God does not open his mouth. Is Jesus hard of hearing now? No. Does he not have answers? No, he's spoken when he's needed to. But he knows the wickedness of their hearts. Herod is not seeking clarification. 
He's mocking. And by his silence, Jesus is turning his face to the cross. In a matter of only moments, Jesus will endure shouts along the road as he walks up the hill to be crucified. But now, as the prophet Isaiah had predicted, here's what's happening. Verse seven of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He didn't speak a word. And look at the treatment our silent king receives. This has to be one of the most shameful scenes, heartbreaking scenes, as Herod himself joins with his own soldiers and begins playing dress up with the king of kings. Verse 11, then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. He mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing and sent him back to Pilate. This is no courtroom of honor. This is Herod mocking the king of the universe. I, I just want you to imagine this scene. Let's not move past it. I, I, want, I want you to imagine this scene. Just if you need to close your eyes, you, you can just imagine. Th- think, of, think of Jesus. Imagine the joy of Herod and his men as they place upon Jesus a bright kingly robe as they press that heavy fabric upon his back where he's already been badly beaten and wounded, the fibers of the cloth tugging on the torn skin of Jesus' back. And just imagine as they're putting these on on Jesus, they're also mocking him. They're, They're playing this horrifying game of dress up, probably pretending to bow before him, making fun of his claims to be a king. Look at the great king. Bow before the great king, and then they laugh. Soon after this, Mark's gospel tells us soldiers will fashion a brutal crown to mockingly go along with his robe. The crown will be made out of thorns and they'll press it into his skin on his head causing blood to begin matting in his hair and and running into his eyes and his beard. Oh, look at the impressive king. So regal. The mocking and the ridicule go on. This is Jesus, the king of all glory, the son of God. Psalm 104 tells us that his garment, his real garment is light and that his true crown is a crown of glory and honor. And in their depravity, this glorious true king stands in front of them and they treat him with contempt. They hate goodness. And the man of all sorrows, what does he do? Nothing. He receives it. He endures their hate. It's hard to even look anymore. For those who were there, what an awful sight. And here is maybe the heaviest part of it. 
These, these brutal soldiers, they, they couldn't see him for who he was. Like we see that over and over again. They didn't know. Even Jesus from the cross will say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They were blind to his worth. They didn't see a king. They, they didn't see anything worthy at all. They just saw a liar. They saw a fraud. They saw him as weak and worthless. But, but the heaviness of it all is, is what Isaiah tells us. This, this, this terrifying truth. And the truth is this, is that we saw him that way too. Isaiah 53, three says this. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. We didn't value Jesus. We stood as the opposition, us. Our selfishness. In our selfishness, we consider him common. We put him on trial in our own hearts and we found him wanting. Through our hatred and our disobedience, our unwillingness to forgive. In that way, we deem Christ as worthless. By our lying, our lust, our selfish ambition, we join in the mocking of the king of mercy. And in our spiritual performing and our pride, we elevate ourselves and we treat him as nothing. The true king of grace, nothing. But Christ endured. As the mocking robe pulled on his bloody skin, he endured our injustice. As he listens to their bloodthirsty cries, these religious elite, he was receiving your mocking, your devaluation of the king of kings. We esteemed him not. I think verse seven of Isaiah 53 really sums up this, these early morning trials. I love, I love the New English uh, translation the net Bible here, the way that it's worded. It says, he was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Who even cared? Friends, the gospel says this, that in the wickedness of our own hearts, we esteemed Christ as nothing. The king of the universe was right there right there with him and no one even cared. No one saw him for who he was. No one rightly valued Christ. And yet, this is the very thing that makes his death so powerful. Why? Because when Herod says to Jesus, show me a miracle, know this, Jesus could have with one blink of his eyes caused Herod and all of his soldiers' hearts to stop they fall dead right there. Just in a moment, every single governor, every single person who had, who had hated Jesus could have died in a, in, a, in a millisecond. But to do so would have meant that you and I would have never known the love of the Father. And this, this is the most powerful defeat this is the power of the gospel. That the strongest one in the universe stayed weak, though he could have rescued himself. That the most powerful ruler in the cosmos remained in chains, even though he was holding together the very iron that, was made, that made the shackles. 
The one who could have saved himself refused to. The one who is the roaring lion remained a silent lamb. If we rewind back only a matter of hours before this moment, right here in the temple, all day long, men and women and children, that very week, the day before this, had been bringing lambs to be sacrificed at Passover. But it wasn't just any lamb that they brought. The, the lamb had to, be, had to be a certain kind of lamb. It had to be unblemished. No injuries, no flaws, the right age. And the lamb was, was brought to the temple uh, to be ex- examined, evaluated, poked, and prodded. It had, to be, it had to undergo scrutiny so that the priest could then declare it to be, yeah, this is, this is a worthy sacrifice. And then it, once it was deemed worthy, it was put forward to be sacrificed And in this moment, Jesus, our Passover lamb, is being questioned, poked, prodded. He's being scrutinized and he's being found blemished by these leaders. But guess what? Their opinion doesn't matter. Why? Because the heavenly father who brought the lamb Though men could not see it, there was no flaw in his lamb. And by the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the son of God, we are redeemed. By the blood of only a spotless lamb, the only one there is, we are now made spotless. Isn't that amazing? Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Do you see that? The most amazing exchange has taken place. The the beautiful substitution that's happening here, that your way of life was empty, but because of Christ now, you have hope. You have eternal life. You now stand unblemished. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Calvin said it this way. God's son stood trial before a mortal man and suffered accusation and condemnation that we might stand without fear in the presence of God. Jesus endured a a brutal trial, but he didn't do it to get his own freedom back. No, he did it so you might be free. He endured the shame of Herod's mocking so that your shame might be lifted. The only true sinless one was found guilty so that you can now stand innocent. It's amazing. If you have never known what Christ has done for you, I implore you, there is only one hope for sinners. And if you're in the room, that's you. There's only one hope for sinners and that would be that the sinless lamb of God took our punishment. And that's what he's doing. When he died and when he rose again. If you do know Jesus, remember again what he did for you and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we, 
we see Jesus. We see his suffering. We see, we see the mistreatment that he received. We see the, the wrong accusations. We see the, the hatred. We see the mocking. We see how blind every person seems to be to who he truly is. And Lord, in that we see our blindness. We see our hatred. We see our, our running after every other thing that we think is God. But Lord, because of Christ, because he endured all the way, he endured our chasing after every other thing. He endured our hatred. He endured our sin. There's nothing that can now separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, we praise you. That is too good to be true. But we know it is because of what Christ has done. We know it is because he is alive now. The death could not hold him, the perfect lamb of God. So Lord, now would you draw us to Christ? Would we see him for who he really is? Would we esteem him highly? Oh, he's so good. And you are so kind to us that we might know him. I pray this in Christ's name.